Again, good morning. Um, hopefully this last week, 4th of July kind of weekend, uh, was a great one for you. Uh, hopefully you were able to spend time with friends and family to relax a little bit, unwind. Um, if you weren't here on July 2nd, we actually started a new series. And uh, the title of the series is called Lady Wisdom. Uh, for those of you not familiar with wisdom literature and the scriptures, there is this uh, idea that um, wisdom is personified by a woman, uh, that we can understand and uh, pursue this particular lady whose name is Wisdom. And uh, so last week was just a bit of an introduction into this series for the summer. It was a chance for us to maybe consider some ways in which you can read wisdom literature. It's a little bit different than reading other particular genres in the scriptures. And uh, I kind of highlighted the fact that throughout the summer, we're going to bounce around. So we'll be uh, in Psalms, we'll be in Proverbs, we'll be in Ecclesiastes, uh, maybe a little bit in Job uh, and the like. Uh, I don't think this particular time we'll get into Song of Solomon, but who knows. Uh, We'll have a guest speaker once this summer, and maybe we'll just uh, tell them to tackle it. But otherwise, um, we'll just go through the rest of uh, wisdom literature. And uh, last week, we really tried to highlight this idea that uh, what really is wisdom? Uh, Wisdom probably could be best defined as applied knowledge. It's the ability to to really have a skill at living or a competence at life. Another way of describing it would be the ability to kind of navigate the complexity of life. If any of you uh, understand life... I think you get the idea that there is complexity. There are questions that remain unanswered. There are situations you're put in that you don't know the proper response. You feel tension from all kinds of different sides, weight, pressure. And the question is, how do you navigate through all of that well? And I think that's where wisdom comes to be. And so last week we talked about three big ideas, that wisdom is, first of all, to be valued, uh, that big concept is that it's to be just desired. It's to be, um, to, to understand that there is great significance to wisdom. Scriptures describe it as being more important or more significant than silver or gold. That your desire to attain it should be so much so that you place a deep, deep value on wisdom. The second kind of idea we talked about last week is that it's to be sought. Uh, that you're to pursue it that you're to chase after wisdom, that you're to seek it, and when you seek it, you'll find it. We even described it since um, it uses language like love and desire. It's really like kind of having the hots for wisdom, like desiring and being like so desirous. Longing is kind of the idea behind it uh, for wisdom. And then the third big idea is that it's to be lived. Um, We understand that in uh, wisdom literature, when it uses the phrase that uh, something is to be heeded or you're to listen to instruction. The word for listen or heed is really the word for obey. It's implied that when you hear it, you will follow it. That when you heed it, you will obey it. So it's not like, hey, let's just gain more knowledge and that'll be good for all of us and we will walk away feeling satisfied we learned something. But it's if you heard it, you conceived it in your mind like you understand what's going on, then you are obligated then to live according to it. 
And so we talked about those three big ideas last week, but today we want to kind of, uh, in, in a way, direct our attention to what I would consider two of the most essential criteria for being wise. That if you were to talk about last week this desire to have or attain wisdom, uh, you will know that you've attained wisdom, you will know that you are walking in wisdom if you have these two essential criteria. And the reason I suggest that these two are kind of the key to understanding wisdom is if you were to distill all of wisdom literature into the subjects that keep coming up again and again and again, the ones that seem to uh, grab the most attention from the authors, the ones that are communicated the most, it's these two things that I think carry the most prominence in wisdom literature. And uh, the section that really talks about both of them back-to-back is found in Proverbs 9. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. It will also be on the screen. The reason I encourage you to turn there is because then we get in a habit of actually digging into the Word, looking at it, and uh, seeing what it says. In Proverbs 9, verses 7 to 10, that's going to be our area of focus. It says this, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So I think there's two big ideas in here that, uh, that really beg our, for our attention. And the first idea is this, that the wise love correction and understanding. The text says, reprove a wise man and he or she will love you. That if you give reproof, if you give instruction, if you give correction, if you speak words to someone who's wise, they will love it. They will cherish it. They will accept it. So another way of saying it would be this. A clear sign that you have wisdom is that you are open-minded. A clear sign of wisdom is a willingness to learn. It's the humility to recognize that you don't have all the answers. You might not know everything yet. A clear sign of wisdom is to hear others' opinions that are different than your own and be willing to acknowledge them. To maybe even hear them. To maybe even consider them. Wisdom is this idea of open-mindedness. In fact, in Proverbs 14.6, it says this. The hater of authority, searching for wisdom, does not get it. But knowledge comes readily to the open-minded man. So to the person who's humble, to the person who's open-minded, there, and is willing to learn, there is this understanding that wisdom will be attained. But to the fool, the one who's not open to correction, the one who's not open to instruction, then they will not receive wisdom. And this is something that comes up in the scriptures again and again and again. Let me give you an example. Uh, Fools, the scriptures say, reject correction or instruction. And when correction or instruction is rejected, the warnings are pretty significant. It says this, that if you are that person rejecting it, you will lead others astray. The Bible defines you as stupid. 
a fool, someone who despises themselves. Whoever hates reproof or correction will die, the scriptures teach, or poverty and disgrace will come upon them, or they shall eat of the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. The picture, obviously, that it paints is uh, quite ominous, right? It's, it's this, man, if you reject wisdom, if you're unwilling to receive correction, it's not really a pretty picture. But there is pain that comes. That there is a, there is a, a sense of, um, of injury almost to yourself. And, and I think if we were to pause for a moment and, um, and just kind of share with our neighbor a story in the past where you've rejected instruction or correction... Uh, I would venture to say that almost all of us would, one, have a story, but two, almost all of us would be able to recall that that probably resulted in some form of things not going quite the way you had hoped. Uh, I was recently talking to my father. Uh, He was one of six boys in the family, Uh, so him and five other brothers got into mischief all the time. Uh, They were always doing things that uh, were not... um, (laughs) were not the, probably the smartest decisions. I think all of them ranged, uh, there's like six boys over about nine or ten years. So they were all around the same age, and they were all like crazy. And uh, uh, my dad was telling me this story where he was, all the brothers decided it would be a really great idea to um, get on the top of their garage and then start at the peak of the garage and run toward the edge and then leap off, and they could perform different tricks. And uh, as they did that, they would receive from their brothers. Uh, so, you know, maybe someone runs down and does a 360 and uh, gets raided by the judges, and the next brother climbs to the peak and runs down. And, and then they decided at one point that uh, what would be even better is to make it a competition that uh, didn't require subjectivity, but was very clear who was the winner. And my dad was incredibly, and still is, incredibly competitive. And so they decided to have a distance contest. They like to see who could actually jump the furthest from the roof. And, uh, and then you could mark it, and you could determine who was the winner. And so somewhere along the way, my grandmother uh, came out, realized the boys were up to no good, Gave them reproof, correction, instruction. Said, hey, listen, no, no, this is not what we're to be doing. Went back in to do whatever it is that she was taking care of. And considering that all of my uncles and my father were still young gentlemen, minus their frontal lobes, they decided to continue down the same path that they were on, regardless of the reproof or correction. And so what they decided to do was it's all about distance, and so they would, they would get to the top of the peak, and then they would run down at an angle as fast as they could, and hit the edge, and then they would launch themselves. And uh, it was my dad's particular time to do it, and he had just gotten beat by one of his brothers, and so he, in his mind, was like, man, I am going to get as close to the edge as I can, because then I'll be able to push off at a better angle create greater distance, and I will prove that I am the best. And so he heads down from the peak of the roof as fast as he can, and he plants his foot right on the edge and then begins to leap, and as he does, his foot slips. Now, 
generally speaking, that's not a good thing. Uh, what makes it an even worse thing is if underneath the garage, like right up next to it, so as not to be in the way of anything they were doing, was the swing set. And so, yes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, oh, I know where this story's going. The story is he slips, tries to push off, kind of like goes like this, catches the top of the swing set, realizes that's not a comfortable place to land, falls down, and then uh, is reminded for the rest of his life, like, don't, don't do that again. Well, it didn't quite go that way. Uh, see, this particular swing set was constructed in a way that um, and this was, you know, a few years back where they didn't think kids would maybe be doing these things or they've learned over time. But in order to hold the swings in place, the top bar would have, like, bolts sticking out, right? Um, just to make sure that everything inside, you know, the swing was operating correctly. And so my dad starts to realize that he's above the swing set and things are not going well. And so starts to try to like contort himself in a way as to miss the swing set, but just happens to catch the very top with his thigh. And what happens was the bolt went right into his leg and he hung upside down by his leg. And obviously it created a commotion enough that my grandmother came out and comes out and just sees my dad hanging upside down from a bolt on the inside of his thigh. And uh, right at that moment, my dad, like, kind of did one of those, like, sit-ups, grabs the bar and, like, did a pull-up and then unlatched himself, dropped down, grabbed his thigh, looked at my grandmother and was like, yeah, I think we might need to get this taken care of, you know? Like, <laughs> and it was one of those moments where if I could have been there and watched it myself, I guarantee all of us would have said, the wise man heeds correction. The wise man listens to reproof. The foolish man goes to the hospital and gets stitches, right? But we've all been there. We've all made one of those decisions where we just simply go, man, regardless of better wisdom, I'm going to do something different. But the scriptures also teach that if you are someone who actually embraces correction, if you're willing to receive it, the rewards are great. Those uh, promises are that whoever heeds it is honored, that they're prudent, that they gain knowledge and intelligence, that they dwell among the wise, that they find themselves on the path of life, that they are the kinds of people that then can also give wisdom. And uniquely in the scriptures, in Proverbs, it says this, that to the person who receives correction or instruction, God says, on you I will pour out my spirit. I mean, these are pretty lofty words. To understand that the person who's willing to embrace correction and instruction is the one that actually is wise. And it's one thing for us to know that, but we talked about last week and again this morning that wisdom is actually applied knowledge. It's just one thing to know that the fool is one who rejects it and the wise is one who accepts it. The bigger question might be, are you foolish or are you wise? And how does one know who one is, right? And I would suggest, let me give you a couple ways to maybe differentiate the difference between one who's willing to receive correction and one who isn't. So I'll give you a couple what I would call standard tactics of fools. People who are unwilling to receive correction. 
Usually it starts with denial. There's a sense of, uh, who, me? No, 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 I didn't do that. Or no, no, I would never do that. Or man, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Or you don't know what you're talking about. Any of those kind of expressions is the idea behind denial. To simply say, no, that's not me, I don't need to learn this particular thing. Another thing that op- often happens is to justify to minimize or to blame shift. Uh, that's where you might hear things like, well, it's not really like that. It's not quite the way you think it is. Or you might hear, um, you don't know the whole story. You might say them, simply go, well, it's not my fault, it's this other person's fault. Uh, they might find a way to deflect the focus. I'm not the problem, really, the problem is over here. Um, it's kind of like what, uh, you know, in the running of the bulls, or when the bull's coming toward the person with it, then they just kind of pull it out of the way and step. That's what it's doing. It's kind of blame shifting, redirecting, um, making sure that fault falls on someone else, but certainly not on them. Another way to do it maybe is to play the victim. So maybe you've come to someone in the past and you've offered instruction, correction. Maybe you've said, hey, I, I really challenge you to consider this or to think about this. And instead of getting, hey, thanks for that advice, thanks for passing that on, you get the, man, you don't know how much you hurt me. Or you don't know uh, how that makes me feel. Or you don't know what I'm going through. And suddenly what happens is you're apologizing to the person. So it's like I come to Kevin and I'm like, hey, Kevin, have you noticed? And he's like, man, you don't know how bad you hurt me. And I'm like, Kevin, I'm really sorry. And then you walk away from the conversation and you're like, wait, I I just apologized for something and I wasn't even a part of any of it. And yet they kind of like walk away. Maybe you sense that. Maybe you yourself have done that. Another example would be to point out others' faults, to say, oh, Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm willing to understand that I do have a problem, but let me tell you how much bigger your problem is in this same exact area, right? A final one that maybe you've either expressed before or maybe you've seen expressed to you is that you tell them that they didn't handle it right. This is probably one of the sneakiest tactics. Uh, So whenever my mom would come and, and just simply say, you know, Russ, maybe this needs to change or you've done something or you need to reconsider, it would be like, Mom, the way you said that to me uh, was not the most helpful, you know. And then suddenly, like, I'm making it about the approach that's been made rather than about the thing that needs to be dealt with. And it's just like, I don't know, mental jujitsu or whatever. It's like you're just, like, switching things around, and suddenly you try to be the one who doesn't receive any correction. Those are just very simple illustrations that point out the idea that the fool tends to not be willing to own their stuff, not be willing to receive the correction. The wise man or woman is the opposite. I'll give you a couple of what I would consider standard approaches of the wise. You might know you're wise or you might begin to demonstrate wisdom when people give you input. Here's what I mean by that. Generally speaking, if you're someone that others are willing to come to and give input, 
give advice, maybe give correction, maybe suggest a different way something is done, it's likely that you're the kind of person that would be willing to receive it. And the reason I suggest that is if everybody knows you're not a person that's going to receive advice, you're not someone who's open to anyone else's opinion, you're not someone who's willing to hear the opinion of someone other than the knowledge you already have, chances are people aren't going to offer you what they think you need simply because they don't want to put up with the hassle of the whole process. They don't want to deal with the backlash. They don't want to handle the drama. They don't want to deal with it, right? So if you're someone that people are willing to come to, you're willing to receive pushback, you're willing to have people enter into conversation then I would suggest there's a good chance you're already living into wisdom because you're demonstrating yourself to be approachable or to be teachable. And maybe another one is to, you know you're wise when you don't have to put up a defense or criticize back. If you can receive pushback or criticism and not become defensive, you're moving toward wisdom. If you can not come back with excuses, if you cannot come back with any of the things we mentioned before where you try to spin it and have it be someone else's fault and not accept any blame, if you can receive correction, instruction, and not be someone who tries to change the other person's mind immediately, or doesn't just sit there and think about all the good comebacks you want to have while they're telling you how they feel then maybe you're approaching wisdom. It's an ability to, to, to kind of let down your guard, to be willing to listen and to receive. And if you do that, I think people that are wise in that way thrive. I'll give you one final one. You know you're wise if you can measure your learning and your character growth. Again, what I mean by this is that if over time you can look back on your life and recognize there is consistent growth of character, that there is change that is taking place, that who you were a year ago and who you are today are different, that you've progressed, that you've become more open-minded to ideas that are different than your own, uh, that you're willing to uh, kind of wrestle with preconceived ideas and stretch. And if you're into that, and you're always pursuing learning and wisdom, there's a good chance you are demonstrating the characteristics of one who's wise. Because wisdom comes from being open to correction and instruction. Second big idea that you'll notice in this text is that the wise fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, this, this phrase, the fear of the Lord, is repeated, I think, about 18 times or more in just Proverbs alone. It comes up again and again, because in many ways, I think it's like foundational to this whole idea of wisdom. In fact, in Proverbs 1, I believe, uh, verse 7 or so, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that kind of everything starts with that place. That if we can find ourselves understanding the fear of the Lord, we're moving toward wisdom. And I want to suggest a very simple definition for the fear of the Lord. And my suggestion is this, that it is a relational posture. 
that the fear of the Lord is a relational posture. What I mean by that is, first of all, it's relational. It's a relational term. Uh, in fact, um, O'Connor describes it this way. She says, among the many meanings associated with the fear of Yahweh, terror or fright are not included. The fear of Yahweh is a relational term which refers to overpowering awe and wonder, combined with powerful attractions humans experience in the presence of the living God. To live in the fear of Yahweh is to live in loving devotion, in close relationship, which makes humans feel small before such a being. So I think the fear of the Lord is this accurate view of who God is and a healthy view of who we are. And it's relational in the sense that I only can live and exist in that space of the fear of God as I relate to God, as I'm known by God and know God, as I'm loved by God and love God. And um, maybe a, an illustration that would kind of uh, help us to understand it in a little bit more tangible way is the feeling that you get when you're in nature. I don't know if many of you get a chance to go out backpacking or hiking or uh, something where you kind of like unplug from the world, set aside everything, and go out into the woods. Uh, recently, I again had a chance to do that. I think it's like refreshing to the soul. And uh, you get out into the woods, and one of the things that I notice right away, regardless of where I am, is just how there's this unique thing between nature and yourself in terms of relationship. And what I mean is you recognize the vastness, the power, the magnitude um, of nature and the smallness of yourself. Like you, you sit next to a waterfall or you sit next to the rapids and you realize the consuming power of the water, just how it's rushing past you, the, the amount of strength that's going by you again and again. You realize and you recognize in that moment that I am not strong. Look at nature. Or if you're at the base of a mountain peak and you look up and you go, okay, I am small, this is not. You, you start to recognize like just this unique relationship. The other um, week I was with my family and it was about 10 at night and uh, we were out in the wilderness and we just laid back on a rock and just stared at the sky. And uh, you didn't have any, um, you know, like light pollution going on at all. You had just crystal clear skies and stars and planets and constellations. And you're looking around and you just start talking out loud about the magnitude of it. You start like, man, did you see that? And did you know that it's this far away? And did you know? And you just start like, rattling off all this stuff that you really honestly probably have no idea what you're saying because even the magnitude of that when you're like oh yeah it's like only like 120 billion light years away and you're like you have no concept what that is and yet when we're in that same relationship with nature we recognize that the one who created it 
That's what it means to begin to fear the Lord, right? To be so in awe and wonder, and yet at the same time so aware of God's love for us. And the smallness, and yet the deep value that we hold. That is kind of that picture of the fear of God. So it is a relational term, but it's also a posture. So I call it a relational posture because the posture, uh, if you read in uh, the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 14, verse 1, it says, uh, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I love this little phrase because I think it does something really unique. Um, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, there is, is added into the text by the um, assemblers of the text because it gives meaning to what's being said, right? So if you go into the Hebrew, there is isn't technically there. It would just say, fool says in his heart, no God, right? The there is brings context or understanding to what is being communicated, but I would suggest that it can mean two things. I would suggest idea number one would simply be that there is no God. So a foolish person would be one who simply says, there's no conception of God, I don't believe in the existence of God, I I don't in any way acknowledge his presence or his awareness, it's just a complete no, right? That there's no uh, sense of, Maybe God consciousness. There's no recognition that God is present in a unique way and demonstrating to us consistently this deep love and compassion. But there's another way to understand this same exact idea, and that would be simply to say that the fool says in his heart, No, God. The idea that his posture toward God is one of no. That when asked, the answer is no. When given an opportunity, the answer is no. When faced with the reality of God and his existence and who we are in light of it, the fool says no. The wise person is the one whose posture toward the Almighty is always yes. Whose posture is one of submission, of gratitude, of a willingness to say, I'm yours. This morning, baptism was all about that. Baptism is really a sign, not just of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's also a sign that says, I submit my life completely to you, and that I'll live my days in such a way. And that's the difference between the fool and the wise when it comes to the fear of the Lord. The fool just simply says, no, I won't submit, I won't bow the knee, I won't commit. But the wise, the person of wisdom, is the one who says yes. This morning, I think that the text, just in Proverbs 9, 7 through 10, is reminding us that if we want to walk in wisdom, we have to be people who are open to correction, open-minded, willing to receive instruction. And we have to be people whose posture toward God is one of yes. We fear the Lord. We're in this awe of him. Awe makes us respond, yes, Lord. Let's pray. God, we want to be people who don't uh, just hear your word. We want to be doers of your word. We don't want to be people who just uh, recognize that um, a fool uh, makes poor decisions, a fool walks away from correction, a fool is unwilling to receive instruction, We don't want to just know it, but we want to actually practice being people that are teachable and humble and open 
people who are willing to receive the challenge and to embrace it and to grow from it. And God, we also want to be people of yes. Yes to your son. Yes to living in this city in a way that changes others' lives. Yes to submitting to your will over ours. So God, help us to continue to live into those things. Help us to demonstrate ourselves this summer as people of wisdom. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you do...